Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Some of science's greatest mysteries have to do with systems, groups of objects that interact with one another, obey similar sets of rules, and achieve things that no single part could accomplish on its own. Though we know why our immune system attacks invasive bacteria and why schools of fish all swim together, the how eludes us. Understanding the mechanism in one system has the potential to unlock all of them, with sweeping implications for communication, engineering, and computing. In the March issue, Vanessa Gregory follows a group of physicists who are studying firefly species that gather by the thousands and synchronize their blinking. I spoke with Gregory about fireflies, the nascent field of complexity science, and how getting past the limits of our own thinking could decipher life, the universe, and everything in it. Fireflies are such an integral part of my memories of summer as a child. And I was surprised to read, but it was also kind of reassuring to read, that fireflies exist on every continent except for Antarctica. There's so many different types of fireflies, and, and they're all kind of, kind of doing the same thing, but not. So could you just start by explaining what Futuris frontalis are? And you know, just what initially interested you in the research around this phenomenon? Of course. So I actually got interested in Photorus frontalis before I ever started working on this story. I live in northern Mississippi. And so a couple years ago, I was visiting a couple friends who live out of the city. They live in the county, sort of in the country. And they also are both ecologists. So I was over there having dinner and they said, we should go outside. We have synchronous fireflies. And I did not know that synchronous fireflies existed. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know that was a phenomenon. And so we went outside and we walked down the steps of their back deck. And then suddenly we were in this incredible forest of light. It looked like rivers of light everywhere. And Photorus frontalis, when they synchronize, it's a very steady pulse on, off, on, off. So the whole forest will light up and then the whole forest will go dark. Some species have a slightly different pattern, but it's just this very steady beat and you're seeing hundreds or thousands of fireflies all blinking on and off at the same time. And I guess, how did you get from there to sort of exploring more about this phenomenon? So I wrote a little bit about synchronous fireflies And as I was looking into them, I came across these really interesting researchers who I write about in the piece for Harper's, Raphael Sarfati and Ori Pelig. And really, at first, I just thought, what are physicists doing stunning fireflies? I I was just captivated by this idea that you had these super mathy people who were looking at the natural world. And so that's how I got really curious about their research and even more broadly about all the quantitative research that's being done around the way animals behave when they're in groups. Right. And we'll come we'll come back to them in a second, but I would love to hear more about Elizabeth and John Buck, who studied all sorts of phosphorus in animals, but they kept coming back to fireflies and how this couple just started researching fireflies like no one else really had before. And it would it would be so interesting to hear about 
their research and their lives. So Elizabeth and John Buck were 20th century researchers, and I think they're really fascinating too because, you know, it's the 1930s, and here you have a husband and wife team, and she's intricately involved in the science as well. She is a respected scientist, and they got really interested in synchronicity in part because we tend to think of this as a really human thing, right? The way that we might all sort of fall in sync when we're clapping after a performance, after you see music or a play, the way our hands sort of come into sync together, or the way humans can march together. And so they got really interested in the fact that this is a phenomenon in nature. And they were really some of the first people to say, look, this is really happening and it's incredible and it's worthy of serious scientific inquiry. Yeah, and when you describe one of, I guess, John's first experiments where he locked some fireflies inside of a dark room and observed the patterns and that before they started doing this research, people didn't believe that, you know, such a tiny animal, such a tiny bug could have such complex thoughts. And there were also, I think in the Victorian era, there were ideas about telepathy. So I guess, how did they... How did they change the field or open up this field of understanding? Well, they did a bunch of measurements and they did a bunch of field studies and they took it really seriously. And you're right. It's so fun, actually, to look at some of these earlier letters and articles in like science from 1916. And people are really hostile to the idea that animals with these little millimeter sized brains could be doing something that seems really complex. And, you know, that's part of the reason physicists are so interested in this, because the idea generally is that when you see this type of complexity in nature, that it's often being driven by very simple rules down at the local level. So if you look at a small group of fireflies, they're sort of following very simple rules, but that when that's extended across this group of thousands, it creates this this order and this complexity that's just really stunning. Could you tell us about the origins of complexity science? And I mean, it's kind of like, isn't all science complexity science, given that the universe is super complex? Yeah, well, traditionally, people were studying in their various fields, right? Whether that's biology or ecology or economics. And the idea of complexity science is this idea that you can look at any type of really sophisticated system and you can study that sophistication rather than sort of the site that it's seated within, right? So if it's your brain or it's your body or it's an entire ecosystem, that you might be able to just study the way that complexity arises. And also this idea that some of these rules that can be applied to various systems will work from one to the other so that you might be able to, you know, look at what's happening in flocks of birds and look at what's happening in magnets and see sort of mathematical similarities between those systems. One of the places that made this really famous is the Santa Fe Institute. And so they've got a really interdisciplinary approach to understanding complexity. So, I mean, you are right. Science is complex and It's a relatively new idea, though, that you could study that complexity itself. Right. And it it is, as you write, the world's outstanding scientific mysteries, regardless of discipline, are all questions of collectives. And 
I would love to hear more about why is this so difficult to figure out? Yeah. So the person who described science that way to me is this great mathematician called Stephen Strogatz. He's a professor of mathematics at Cornell, and he wrote a great book called Sync. And so he points out, for instance, that our immune system is basically a collective, right? So we have these limited number of genes, about 30,000, but they can produce antibodies to seemingly limitless numbers of foreign substances. So exactly how this happens, it's not still entirely understood, right? And we've all been thinking about the immune system over the past couple of years. Whether we want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whether we want to or not, exactly. And so, you know, his argument is that the way things interact with each other, that's, that's really the way we need to be thinking, is we need to be thinking about how life works in conjunction with each other, whether it's on the cellular level or whether it's on sort of a macro level of of birds in a flock or fireflies in a swarm. You also note that one of the biggest impediments to understanding this behavior is just this kind of anthropocentric focus we have on the individual and that we have these ideas like that man, and it's (laughs) almost always a man, uh, is a genius. And thinking about collectives and thinking about, you know, these, these things that may not even be thoughts, it just really opens up the potential to better understand animal cognition and in our own, as you just mentioned, our own bodies. Yeah, it's a fascinating way of thinking about cognition. And that's something that has really drawn me into this story is that you know we tend to think about cognition as being seated in the mind. That's something that happens in an individual brain. But there are studies out there looking at some of these collectives that suggest there are times when a system of animals might be smarter than an individual animal. So there's a couple of examples of studies on fish, these fish that school together called golden shiners. And in one of them, the individual fish don't seem to be able to sense a slope but the entire network does. So there's this knowledge embedded in these communication networks between fish that doesn't reside within an individual fish, which is sort of mind-blowing to me to even think about. Yeah, and and again, we have no definitive answer on why that is. But again, it's like in our, our understanding of such simple organisms or seemingly simple organisms is so limited, again, perhaps because of the way we're coming at at the universe. Yeah, that's right. And there are all sorts of interesting questions about how these systems, whether they're a tightly synchronous system like fireflies or a system like a school of fish or a flock of birds, how that works and and even why. We have a lot of ideas, right? So one common idea is that, you know, a school of fish may protect uh, against predators. And we've got all sorts of observations in the field to suggest that. But there are a lot of complications too. For instance, any of those fish on the edges, they're taking one for the team, essentially. (laughs) And there's not necessarily a reason (laughs) to believe they should do that. And so, you know, how these schools form and how that works and why they've evolved to do that is really interesting. And going back to one of the contemporary researchers you mentioned earlier, Rafael Sarfati, who you go to Congaree National Park with in 
South Carolina. You know, he's setting up cameras to record the firefly swarms. And he refers to animal life, including fireflies, as thinking objects. And I mean, this is just a small detail, but I wonder how much of the approach of this research is actually embedded in that phrase. And could you unpack what he means by that? Yeah, of course. So this phrase that Raphael Sarfati uses, thinking objects, is really evocative and it's really helpful in understanding how physicists think about the work they're doing or how computer scientists think about the work they're doing when it comes to studying animals. And so they're basically taking the same math and the same principles that they might use to study the physical world, for instance, to study microscopic particles. And they're taking that math and they're using it to try to understand the interactions between animals. Now, of course, that's much more complicated because an electron doesn't have senses, an electron doesn't mate for life, an electron doesn't recognize hierarchies. So it doesn't apply quite as neatly, but there are still insights that researchers can gain about animals and about these behaviors by relying on those methods that deal with matter. And the researchers you follow are not especially interested in understanding why fireflies synchronize, or at least they're not that interested in kind of speculating about it. They're more interested in discovering the how. And, you know, in this, they're a little like the fireflies in that they're doing what they do, you know, sort of like the fireflies are flashing. And in this case, the scientists are collecting and analyzing data without special concern for the overall effect but in such a way that through their collaboration, a larger pattern emerges. The why emerges through their collaboration. And this, this connection seems to be woven very subtly and seamlessly throughout the piece. And I wonder if that was a conscious intention or just emergent. <laughs> Well, I love the idea that there's emergent properties to my own writing. I don't think I've ever thought so grandly um, <laughs> about my work. Yeah, so Raphael and Orit are both just incredibly smart people and really curious researchers. And they're both very curious about animals and the nature, natural world. They're also very curious about evolution. But in terms of what they think they can do with their own research, they're very careful when you talk to them to sort of stay in their own lane. You know, they're going to talk to you about firefly flash frequency, you know, how often those those little fireflies flash over a period of time. And they're, they're not going to really theorize about what it means. But if you talk to Ian Cozen, for instance, who is probably uh, the leading researcher on collective behavior in the world, he's at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, he's argued that all these, these little studies that are very sort of mathematically narrow, and that if you were to pick up one of these papers, it would, for most of us, just be hard to decipher. It's full of formulas. But that if you look at them together, they're a way of looking at how various patterns might emerge in, in different biological systems and, and their way to perhaps see similarities. What those similarities mean is uncertain, but there are some that certainly appear to be intriguing. One that Ian's written about is the idea that certain species of ants, they sort of ebb and flow in their activity and that it looks a lot like neural brain waves, which is just 
fascinating and intriguing. And we don't know if it means anything or if it means something, but that's a great question, especially if you think about evolution, is why would we see these similar patterns evolving in really different systems? Yeah, and it it, it calls to mind sort of, I believe it's from the Renaissance of this idea that, you know, there are certain patterns in nature that exist regardless of what what type of biology or what what form it's taking, you know, like the the Fibonacci sequence. And it's interesting to see us kind of come back to that, that there are certain there there might be certain things that recur and we don't know why, but it might just be because that's the only way they can recur. Yeah, and that's a, you know, it's a fascinating observation to make those links back to Fibonacci and to this earlier science. And I think it's something that drives a lot of these researchers. You know, uh, Raphael Sarfati and Orit Pelig both are very careful to only state what they're able to do in their studies. But Raphael in particular is very intrigued by this idea that there might sort of be some of these widely applicable truths in these equations that are used in physics that might apply to living systems. He's really interested in that, and he was always eager to sort of entertain those questions when I asked them. Yeah, and you end the piece with sort of the glum acknowledgement that their research might be used to help, you know, better develop computer programs or increase productivity, you know, all like all the normal sort of like depressing, like taking something that is fundamentally cool and applying it to like business stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I guess to what extent has their research been extrapolated or what are their feelings about their research being extrapolated for that purpose? Well, you know, their research and the research of other people in this field of collective animal behavior is often pointed at as as a really practical thing. And I think that's great. It's probably great for the researchers. They are funding labs, for instance. And if you can say that maybe this can be used to make robots, then that's great. But Raphael in particular, even though he's a physicist, he was really interested in these fireflies. He wasn't even that insistent that these studies solve big problems in evolution, he was happy to sort of add to the information we might even have just about individual species and just getting sort of some of that basic ecological information that that people are classically interested in who are interested in the natural world. And I mean, I think what's so, or what I loved, I mean, I, I loved your writing in the piece, but I think the photographs that accompanying it are just absolutely spectacular. And, you know, they're from Congaree National Park. And while you were out there with the scientists, while they're doing this field research, were there sort of more practical difficulties of research that you, you found them coming up against? Like, you know, someone leaves a lens cap on or the tent is unzipped or, you know, how easily these or simply these these experiments can just be can fail. Yeah, I think part of what's so fascinating about watching scientists at work is that on the one hand, they're using all this high-tech equipment, even though all of that's very accessible to us as consumers now, right? Essentially, Raphael uses little GoPro cameras for some of his work, but it's still all very human-driven. And we're just talking about, on one of the nights I was out there, three little people out in the woods in the dark, wandering around with headlamps on. So Orit, who runs the Pelic lab, who runs this lab in 
at the University of Colorado Boulder, Rafael Sarfate, who's her postdoc, and their grad student, Owen. And so it's very easy to make mistakes. It's a very human process. And Owen, the grad student one night, was sort of hunched in one of these tents all night long, sweating, trying to get a camera to work. So the reality of the fieldwork is it's tough. And this is a new frontier for a lot of physicists. You know, a lot of physicists work in labs or they work behind computers. And almost all of the original work done on collective animal behavior was modeling. So it was almost like mathematician types and physicists and chemists. They were taking inspiration from birds and from schools of fish and from fireflies, but they weren't really testing it. So they had these models, but they were just that. They were models. And now we're in sort of this new era where people are out in the field doing experimental work that's kind of more common for biologists. And so it's definitely challenging. Yeah, because I think when people imagine scientific research, the, the sort of default is, you know, somebody in a white lab coat in the closed system of a lab, you know, with, with gloves and all this sort of precautions on and that everything is very controlled. And that, you know, when it comes to this type of research, that's absolutely not the case. But that also is kind of exciting in a certain way. For sure. They never know what the conditions are going to be like in Congaree. They've been there several years. And afterwards, they go to the Great Smokies, where they look at a different species, Photinus carolinus, that also synchronizes. And the weather can be bad. We are talking about the deep south in early spring, so it can either be quite pleasant. It was beautiful when I was there, really nice weather. But I guess a couple of days later, the yellow flies came out, and they were out all night being bitten by flies in the heat, trying to get good video of fireflies. Living the dream. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I do think they love it, but it, it's, it's hard work. They're, they work really hard when they're in the field. Yeah, it, it is It is just, I can't get over what, it's just such a dreamy subject to focus your research on fireflies. And I, I think maybe that that curiosity or sort of that romance has to do with the fact that they glow, right? And I mean, how, have there been connections established between fireflies and other phosphorescent animals? Or are they really just kind of their own thing because it you know you're describing you know like the behaviors of schools of fish and things like that it's just so fascinating that there's just some types of there's some species that do this not all species but just some well you're exactly right what's fascinating about this is that we have all these species of fireflies as you mentioned earlier that exist all over the planet right everywhere except antarctica but it's a relatively small portion of fireflies that synchronize. So the most famous examples are in Asia, and they're the fireflies that synchronize. They do it while they're stable. They do it sitting on bushes or trees. So you'll see like an entire tree light up and then go dark. We were later to realize that we have synchronous fireflies in the U.S., and it's not even clear how many species do it? There may be species out there that do this that haven't been observed yet. And indeed, um, after I was with Raphael and Orit in Congaree, and after they went to the Great Smokies National Park, they went to Arizona and they were walking around in these canyons looking for another species called Totinus nulli that also synchronizes. So why do they do this? 
that's a great question, right? It, it doesn't seem to make sense evolutionary wise. If, if you're a man, if you're a hot man, firefly <laughs> out there looking for a mate, why would you, why would you sort of obscure your individuality, right? That's not what most of us know from our basic understanding of how evolution works. You know, we think of rams butting heads or, or birds doing those crazy dances with their beautiful feathers to attract a mate. It, it really is an open question of, of why this is happening. There's one theory that it might be reducing visual clutter for female fireflies, but it's it's really still undecided what's happening here and, and how that makes sense for the species. Well, I, I was also intrigued by the fact you said that female fireflies sometimes eat male fireflies. <laughs> That's just yeah. something and that you would, again, it's just like, they're such, they're such elegant creatures and you wouldn't think like, oh yeah, they're just cannibals sometimes. We don't really know why. <laughs> yeah, so... You know, what's interesting about female fireflies eating male fireflies is that they're luring them there by imitating the flash pattern of a different species of firefly. So they pretend to be a different species of female firefly, and they lure in these males, and they eat them. And this is even more fascinating if you just think that this light signal, right, it's communication, and they're using it in all these different sophisticated ways. And I would love to hear you talk about criticality, which you kind of summarize a bit and, and in, the, in the article. And is criticality another idea that came out of the Santa Fe Institute or does it predate that? So, well, this is a slightly terrifying concept for an English major to talk about, but <laughs> criticality is, is basically this, this long-term idea in physics that it suggests that systems can be perched at this sort of knife's edge between order and disorder, and that when they're there, you can have these, these properties that emerge, these emergent properties, right? And that they can be these sort of just really incredible properties that we wouldn't expect. Now, this is controversial. You know, one critique of it is that physicists just love this idea, but it is a, a working theory, for instance, for why flocks of birds can do what they do. Because if you think about a flock of birds, they're up there hundreds or even thousands or tens of thousands of birds making these high-speed turns at a moment's notice. And they are somehow communicating in the absence of a leader how to do this, and they're doing it flawlessly. And so one idea is this might be sort of a lossless information system which is something that, of course, computer scientists and Silicon Valley types love to talk about, but it, it may be something that exists in nature. I mean, this concept sounds, you know, in the way you describe it, it almost sounds like the seed of a, another essay. And I, I'd be curious to hear more of what you're hinting at with criticality and that connection between, you know, Silicon Valley and other technology. I mean, obviously, it's beside the kind of extrapolating this information to make cooler robots or whatever. Yeah, um, I don't think I've thought ahead to the next essay yet, but I do think there's a lot more of interest in this field of collective behavior that I'd be curious about exploring. I'd be really curious, this has made me curious more about how animals sense and how animals think. There are just a lot of questions out here about nature, and I'd, I'd love to look into some more of the work that people are doing in this field today. And 
you shamefully mentioned that you were an English major. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess. How did you kind of prepare to report this piece? I mean, immersing yourself in the, you know, the world of these kind of sometimes impenetrable papers, these scientific findings and mathematical reports. Well, I think that approaching this as an English major is both <laughs> both an experience of, of great terror, but also opportunity. I figure that if I could understand what these researchers were talking about, anybody could. And I also, you know, it's interesting to talk to scientists and ask questions from the from the point of an outsider, because sometimes sometimes those are going to really work. They're going to really respond to what you're going to say and you're going to think about things in a different way. Short version of that answer is that I read a lot of papers and I panicked. And then I asked a lot of the same questions over and over again until I understood things. And, and hopefully that came through. <laughs> that's a, that just sounds like good advice for life. Don't be afraid. <laughs> just ask lots of questions until you understand. <laughs> yeah, as long as you have patient people around you, that, that'll work. Yes. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of, of this. Again, because I think it is so, or there's so many different potential implications of this type of research. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what most of the researchers that I talk to would say. They would definitely agree with how you've just framed it. I mean, part of the reason I wanted to do this story is because this field of collective annual behavior as studied by physicists is really, it's taking off. It's taking off because researchers like Raphael and Orit can go into the field now and they can use these cameras, these regular old cameras that you might put on your head to snowboard and take action shots. They can use these to just gather an incredible amount of data. And, and with that and with the computing power they have, they can do this crazy math on it. And this just wasn't possible even 20 years ago, right? We've had so many technical advances that now this, this field is kind of in a renaissance or even in its infancy. And Raphael has said, you know, we can get all the data we want now and it's our job to ask really good questions. And there are so many of those out there. Yeah. So I guess Silicon Valley isn't all bad. <laughs> we can all, we'll allow it, I guess. We'll allow it. Thank you so much. This was really fascinating. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org slash save to subscribe for only $16.97.